Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Scary out there, isn't it? The remnants of late afternoon, late season cubs angst, the fans marinated in beer and sorrow all evening long, and now gone shuffling about in the night, our night. Ah, well, you made it to the door, you pushed the right button, so come. Come in and drop your cool weather gear. Grab a drink, scoop some treats, find a chum, and snuggle. This is the Nook. My name is Lawrence Santoro, and this this is Tales to Terrify. And we have a fine evening planned for tonight. If this is your first visit, take notes. First, we have a Facebook page. That's a kind of anteroom to the Nook. It is visual, audible. It is us. That is to say, it is you. It is me. It is all of us. Stop by, like us, and join in. Also, if you're listening via iTunes or any of the other services that carry our show, take a moment on the way out to give us a warm and friendly review. If you like the show, if you don't, just keep it to yourself. Okay. You might also stop by our homepage, TalesToTerrify dot com, and have a look at the month's art. It is, by my taste and consensus, spectacular. Allison Nukland. The digital painting is by artist Alejandro Dini. And while there, well, do what you should do: make a contribution, or better yet. Subscribe to the show and make a commitment to us here in the District of Wonders. We need you. Well, of course we do. 
And you could also, by the way, pick up a copy of Tales to Terrify Volume 1 while you're on the website. Will there be a Volume 2? Hmm. Well, who knows? Who knows? One more thing. Uh, last week, I mentioned that our producer, Tony C. Smith, he of the indomitable will, has suggested, yes, he's suggested, that we consider holding a virtual horror convention right here in the nook. This would be a one-day, five-or-so-hour gathering of horror authors, artists, scholars, fans, whomever. It would be live and consist of interviews, panel discussions, possibly readings by some of the authors whose stories we've had here, but this time it would be them reading their stories. It would be both audio and visual. Well, what do you think? To attend, it would cost about ten pounds, whatever that is in your currency, and there would be room for about eighty of you. That's squeezing quite a few people into the nook, but Mahler, the ink black cat of the nook, can stand it, so let us know. Sound off on Facebook. Okay? Okay. And now, quick as that, off to fiction. Our first story of two tonight is from S.A. Hunter, or Sandy, as she's known by friends and family. Sandy Hunter attended school in Victoria, British Columbia, and later graduated from the University of British Columbia with a B.A. in English literature. After her daughter came along, she chose to work close to home and indulge her love of animals by working for an amiable, if thrifty, veterinarian. Ms. Hunter is a member of the Burnaby Writers' Society, SF Canada, and a local writers' group, WIP, on Vancouver Island. She has had previous publication in On Spec, and her first novel, a young adult fantasy, Ellen Ray, The Val, was published by Eternal Press in February of 2012. Okay, without further fuss from my corner of the room, here is And the Coyotes Sang by S.A. Hunter. Ralph arched and twisted violently. He managed to gather his legs beneath him and spring from the table, landing in the far corner of the room. From there, he glared his hatred. Rumbling deep in his throat, he warned them. Lisa! Dr. Allen warily shoved her hair back and raised her eyes to meet the new assistant's sulky stare. Morosely, Margaret Allen acknowledged to herself her prejudice against the pretty, vapid girl. She modified her tone. Lisa, you've been shown by both Dr. Klein and myself how to properly restrain. Dr. Allen pushed her glasses back up her nose. It'll be easier on him and us when we get that anesthetic in him. He's a horrible cat, Lisa shouted, rubbing her forearm. Look what he's done to me. She extended the pale underside of her arm for Margaret's inspection. The tender white flesh was scoured with four angry streaks. Ruby droplets oozed along their length. Lisa's fair cheeks were blotted with hectic color as she minutely examined the damage. I hate him. 
Maggie glanced at Ralph, who slitted his yellow eyes menacingly. She sighed. Here, Lisa, let's clean that arm. Lisa edged over to the sink where Maggie brusquely sprayed water over the scratches. Ralph's got an abscess. He hurts. She eyed the girl over her glasses. That doesn't improve his temper. Ow! Lisa jerked her arm away from Maggie's grip. Will it scar? Margaret slapped antibacterial soap into Lisa's hand. Stripes of honor, my dear. Goes with the territory. With no change in her petulant expression, Lisa rubbed the hippotane over her wound. Her fingernails were pink and perfectly shaped. Longer than a veterinary surgeon should be, Maggie observed, and longer than a veterinary assistant should be. Why did you apply for the vet assistant job? Maggie had seen some of the applications that had come across the desk. Many of them appeared well qualified for the job. Lisa shrugged. I was bored. I needed a change. Lisa continued. Dr. Mack said I'd brighten the place up. He offered me the job. Maggie bent a jaundiced look at the girl's head. Where did you work before? Electric Beach. You know, at the tanning salon. Oh, Maggie absorbed this information and mentally cursed male menopausal aberrations. Irritation gnawed at her as Lisa continued to peer and stroke at her arm. She eyed the clock. Come on, Lisa, she said, imitating cheerful optimism. Let's get him knocked down. He looks calmer. Lisa's blue eyes were icy. No, get Ernie to help you with him. Ernie? Margaret felt she must be blinking owlishly. Ernie? What's Ernie got to do with it? He's the janitor. The girl arched her brows. Dr. Mac always gets Ernie to help. Dr. Mac says I don't have to do cats. A small smile tilted the corner of Lisa's mouth. Perhaps she didn't realize it was there. Or perhaps, Maggie wondered, she meant it to be seen. Well, Maggie shoved at her glasses. Ernie is busy doing his own work and you and I are going to do ours. Here. She retrieved two large gauntlets from a high shelf and stuffed one of the girl's flaccid arms into each. They're made of kangaroo skin. Tough as hell. She propelled Lisa back toward the treatment table and turned, swooping down on Ralph, who hissed in surprise. Maggie efficiently tucked him against her body, crossing his front legs in a single-handed grip. Like this. Got it? Lisa eyed Dr. Allen sullenly a moment then wordlessly took Ralph in a reasonably competent restraint. Maggie Allen paused to deliberately exhale her exasperation. She spoke in low, soothing tones to Ralph. The huge black cat seemed to realize some crises of tolerance had been reached. With one final lifting of his lips and laying back of ears, he allowed Maggie to tourniquet his leg. She injected anesthetic into the vein without any further acrobatics. Silent, face averted, Lisa bent over Ralph as Maggie gently put pressure on the plunger of the syringe. Maggie found her glance sliding from the pale parting of hair at the crown of Lisa's head to the tender blue-veined skin behind the girl's ear. Ralph went to dead weight in her hands. Ralph's amber eyes glowed in the darkened kennel room as Maggie approached his cage. He lay with front paws tucked under his chest, his tail wrapped neatly around. Hmm, you really aren't so bad, are you? Maggie murmured. The big cat began to purr, an almost hypnotic rhythm. His eyes blinked complacently, 
and Maggie smiled back. He exuded zen-like serenity. Dr. Allen? Ernie stood at the kennel room door. Maggie roused herself. Hi, Ernie. All done? Ernie shuffled nervously, his earnest gaze fixed on her face. Wiping his big hands down his jeans, he swallowed. I'm all done, the barn. Um. Ernie flashed his prominent teeth in a smile, quickly shuddered. Maggie guessed that he'd been teased many times about the size of his mouth and teeth. Personally, she found his appearance conveyed a strength and vitality she found appealing. That's great, Ernie. Why don't you head on home now? It's getting late. I wondered if there was anything else you'd like me to do. I don't mind staying. Maggie, alerted by Ernie's expression, suddenly realized she was the object of a 19-year-old's infatuation. She felt both touched and appalled. Maggie smiled warmly. No, I... Wow, what a neat cat, Ernie interjected, walking toward Ralph's kennel. I really like animals, Dr. Allen. To Maggie's surprise, Ralph lowered his head and butted gently at the large knuckled fingers waggling through the bars of his kennel. Well, Ernie, Ralph seems to like you too. Yeah. Man, is he big. Can I help you with him? Dr. Klein's been letting me help him with the cats. So I understand. Ernie... I'm sure Dr. Klein appreciates your willingness to help. I like it. I want to learn more of that kind of stuff. Ernie's eyes blazed. I'll stay longer and everything will still get done. His hands lifted and fell as if he were unsure of how to emphasize the importance of this to him. I've always liked animals much better than people. Most people, anyways. I like you, Dr. Allen. Liked you right off. Maggie was touched. Well... I like you too, Ernie. She studied him, considering the novel thought of replacing Lisa with Ernie. Mac had told her that Ernie definitely played in a different ballpark, but the boy had adopted the clinic as his second home. Hell, Mac had said. I think this is his home. He sleeps in the barn more often than not. I'll tell you what, Ernie, she said seriously. I promise I'll discuss the possibility of training you in assisting with Dr. Klein. Thanks, Dr. Allen. Thanks. Ernie nodded and awkwardly flailed his hands again. He turned at the door and flashed a quick, shy grin, a dazzling flash of white in the darkened room. See you Monday. Thanks a lot. See you then, Ernie. Good night. She was still scratching thoughtfully at Ralph's broad skull when a sudden dervish of cold air chilled her feet and tumbled some cat food kibbles across the floor. Maggie sniffed the air, fresh night scents, earth and damp leaves. Curious, she walked from the kennel room down the dark hallway toward the reception desk. The furious gusts of the October storm were strong enough to push open the heavy glass and aluminum door of the clinic entrance. Maggie watched as dry leaves scrabbled crab-like across the cedar deck. At the far end of the flood-lit drive, poplar trees were bending like stalks of grass. At least it wasn't raining. Yet. Maggie shivered. At midnight, she would turn 30. 30. Her mother, a beautiful and vital woman, had disappeared just after her 30th birthday. Maggie had never got over the aching loneliness of missing her. On the evening Maggie's mother had celebrated her 30th birthday, 10-year-old Maggie crept down the stairs in her nightgown and ran, sobbing toward her mother. Some of her mother's regular guests at the cocktail party had exchanged droll looks. Maggie saw them, but she didn't care. 
She felt something was going to happen to take her mother away from her. Louise Allen's hazel eyes had widened in surprise as Maggie flung herself toward her and pressed a tear-blotched face into the delicate fabric of her evening dress. She put her arm around Maggie and walked toward her small office off the living room. A male voice called after, Oh, for heaven's sake, Louise, send the child back to bed. Maggie knew by the quick rustle of silk and sudden tension of her mother's hand on her shoulder that Louise had flashed the speaker an angry glance. Maggie sneaked a look at the man from under her mother's arm. Louise Allen's friends seemed always to defer to her. Maggie saw how the others already drifted away from the man who had offended her mother. He tossed his drink down quickly, though he hunched one shoulder in a careless way. The gesture was lame rather than defiant. A woman laughed and drawled. Nothing comes between Louise and her cub, Raymond. You know that. Louise closed the office door behind them, turned on the table lamp, and sat Maggie down on the small leather sofa. Here, Magpie, lay your head on my lap. We'll tuck this snuggly thrower around you. So, now tell me. Her mother's fingers stroked damp hair back from Maggie's face. Oh, my dear, I will tell you a thing you must remember. There is something very, very special happens when the Allen women turn 30. Mother's smooth fingers felt like a soft tongue lapping at her forehead. Maggie's eyes drooped. There now. I will tell you a secret. Would you like that? Just as sleep overcame her, Maggie reflexively grasped at the throw rug as it slipped away. How strange that its soft wool now felt like the rough pelt of a large beast. Maggie shook off the memory. She pushed through the clinic door and stood outside, rubbing the chill from her forearms. The stars flared as if fanned by the wind. The train whistle blew at Vetter Crossing. Coyote howls singing counterpoint. Maggie knew that train and coyotes had a symbiotic relationship. The CN Freight traveled a deep, five-kilometer gully between Hemlock Ridge and Vetter before it swung south again toward the Fraser River. The coyote pack would run in the train's wake, frequently finding small animals injured or dead. Maggie had walked the tracks and seen the small scattered bones. She shrugged. Well, the tracks are cleared of carrion and the coyotes well-fed. Sighing, she went back inside. She glanced at her watch. Nine. Two more hours and she would be free to go home to a hot bath and a good book. She looked for Ralph's file, somewhere amidst the upheaval on the desk, presumably. Lisa, where's Ralph's file? Maggie patted over the various folders stacked to either side of the monitor. It's on the desk. Maggie swiveled, a frown creasing her brow. Lisa was seated at the dispensary counter. The Hemlock Ridge Times spread before her. Before Maggie could speak, a gust of wind blasted open the door. Her hands slapped after the various papers in flight around the computer. Lights flickered. The computer, which Maggie thought of as a sentient, if perverse, entity, scrolled silent, hieroglyphic curses. The appointment book pages snapped backward. Oh, sure, Maggie muttered. Enter the ghost. What? Lisa looked up from her paper. Maggie glared at the front door. Isn't it unusual for the wind to blow from the north like this? Dunno. Lisa, uninterested, went back to her paper. Guess so. Her voice brightened. Listen to this. They found that old coot who used to look after the canoe rental place at Crater Lake. Dead. Man, I remember him from when I was a kid and we used to go up there. He'd come out of his little shack and tell us to get off the dock. Crazy old geek. 
The guys would tell him where to go, and he'd jump up and down. He'd get so pissed at us. It was so fun. Lisa shook her head. Maggie remembered him. Only two days ago, she'd driven up to see the lake. He had been a strange little man in a siwash knit toque with an eagle feather stuck in it. Two more days and we'd be closed up for the winter, lady. He had peered at her. It's a big lake. The wind can come up fast and catch you unawares. His gray stubble chin, with its tobacco stain, had jawed away with the fascinating flexibility of the toothless. I don't run out to no ladies alone. He spat. Disgusting. An awful little man. So disrespectful. Maggie blinked and pushed at her glasses. What happened to him? Lisa's finger found the text. The body of Mr. Samuel Gibbons, better known to residents of Hemlock Ridge as Crater Lake Sam, was found by canoeists at the shore of Crater Lake. Crater Lake Sam. Ha! That isn't what we called him. Lisa continued reading. The owner of the canoe rental business where Mr. Gibbons worked as watchman for ten years says he knows of no relatives or next of kin. Police continue to investigate. Exact cause of death is not known at this time, as the body appears to have been mauled by scavengers. Maggie winced as Lisa popped her gum and the phone suddenly warbled. Maggie Allen heard Lisa speaking, but she remained staring out the dark glass at the front door. All she saw was a dark reflection of the veterinary clinic reception area, with herself a pale specter staring back. Dr. Allen, Lisa's voice was peeved. Hmm? Maggie struggled back to reality. Lisa was poised, hand over receiver, even though the phone was on hold. It's Mrs. Pruitt Jones, Lisa hissed. She wants to talk to you, now. Oh no. She told Mrs. Pruitt Jones to call her when Madam Butterfly, her English bulldog, went into labor. Maggie reached for the receiver. Lisa, could you prep the surgery for a cesarean section? I'll need you to stay over time. She'll be a tough anesthesia. All bulldogs are. I can close her up myself. Just stay till I can get her delivered. With dismay, Maggie watched a crimson hue steal up Lisa's neck. There's four hours overtime pay in it for you, she hastened to add. And I'll get Mrs. Pruitt Jones to bring Butterfly right down. You should be done in a couple of hours. It was a bitch of a surgery. Butterfly's trachea collapsed while Maggie was trying to intubate her. Lisa whined over her head. What's the good of these stupid dogs anyway? They can't even have puppies without surgery, and besides, they're ugly looking. And now I'm going to be late meeting the guys tonight. Lisa slammed the retractors Maggie gave her into the pan. We were all going to play billiards at Mocha Man's. Maggie's ears were burning. Her eyes flinched from tiredness as she finally exposed the uterine horns and three viable puppies in their birth sacks. Can I get Ernie to help you finish? He's sleeping in the barn again. I could get him in two minutes. Then I could still meet the guys. Sweat seeped into Maggie's eyes. She glanced at the surgery clock. Damn. Almost midnight. Just a little while more, Lisa. Check her gums, will you? How are they? Pink. Good. Maggie breathed. She opened the first sack and removed the pup. Small, warm, and wet. Tenderly, briskly, she rubbed it, then handed it to Lisa. Incubator. Butterfly, you make beautiful babies. Lisa snorted, a small puff of her surgical mask. Just two more, and suddenly rigid, Maggie felt a tremendous pain, vibration, charging through her body. 
She bent over the operating room table, breathing in short, shallow gasps, helpless against the onslaught. The pain surged from head to feet, boiling just under her skull. Ears buzzing, she felt pressure against her eardrums, as if she dived too deep. Brilliant colors flared around her peripheral sight. Everything in the white, sterile surgery suddenly had its own vivid corona. As quickly as it had come, the pain left, and she hung, panting, in its wake. Slowly, she swayed upright, pushing her glasses back up her nose. To her surprise, her vision was all distorted. She removed the glasses, and for the first time in many years, saw with unaided clarity. What on earth? Oh no, what now? Maggie quivered as static-like tingles crawled almost caressingly over her body. Again panting, she felt increasingly intense sexual arousal, her nipples hardening, an engorged clitoral throbbing. Never before had Maggie felt such a fervid heat. Her nostrils dilated to the scent of blood below her. She tipped her head down, watched, fascinated, as the crimson-threaded opalescent sacs pulsed in the mother's body. New life, their small energies visible to her. Slowly, Maggie drew down her surgical mask. Bending low over the huge incision, she closed her eyes and licked, ever so delicately, at a throbbing natal sac. Again, tingles of energy, tiny and pleasurable, zapped through her. A cartilaginous crackling followed the path her tongue traced, and horrified, Maggie saw the torn natal sac spill its bloodied contents. Tiny, abraded bones projected from their membrane covering. Noise, shrill, unpleasant noise. Maggie looked up, her tongue still seeking, tasting the blood on her lips and chin. Lisa, sprawled against the far wall. The instrument tray was spilled at her feet. It was she, screaming. Maggie's dislike of the girl curdled in her stomach like clotted blood, and a hotter, darker rage filled her. I am the Alpha, more sensual, more beautiful, more fierce than she. She, I will kill. I will urinate on her ugly remains. Lisa's fear inflamed her. Maggie panted with the emotions the fear smell stirred in her. One dominant female in any pack, stupid useless girl. Her lip curled and her hands tightened on the edge of the operating table. The hair on her scalp lifted with the tension in her muscles. Stop moving. Stay very still, Maggie commanded, her voice rough, guttural, and strange to her own ears. Increasing waves of energy thrust through her body. Her forearms thickening. Her hands. Her hands. Maggie dropped to all fours, stretching into a flaunting display of youthful musculature and spelt flank. Her human self was there, she realized, in the energy aura that surrounded her. She retained the ability to tap that if she wanted. She saw herself reflected in the polished steel of the operating room door and preened, her tongue lolling moistly, red over fine white teeth. I am strong and very beautiful. Lisa screamed shrilly over and over. Her arms fluttered against the white wall as she edged away. Maggie twitched an ear at the scratching of Lisa's nails against the wall. Slowly, Maggie turned, lowering her head, walking stiff-legged, 
she stalked her prey. Maggie was splashing water on her face when she heard Ernie's voice. Dr. Allen? She looked up, water dripping from her fingers. Echoes of her animal arousal still reverberated through her body. Fine young male came unbidden. Ernie's glance swung around the surgery. Butterfly, warmly wrapped in a blanket as she snored and snuffled her way up from the anesthesia sleep. Two pups heaped in the incubator, tiny limbs moving as they blindly nosed each other, and the bloody rags of flesh in the surgery that had been Lisa. His face lit as his gaze returned to Maggie. Dr. Allen, you're so, so beautiful. Maggie had seen her reflection in the small mirror over the surgery scrub sink. She was a vivid, glowing version of her former self. Energy vibrated all over her skin like warm sunshine. She shook the water from her hands and smiled back at Ernie. She sensed she need explain nothing. Thank you, Ernie. Ernie gazed at her. His shoulders shifted as if shrugging off an ill-fitting coat. Awkwardness dropped away as he stepped protectively toward her. His hand reached to touch her face, and Maggie leaned into the caress. Her tongue flicked his hand, tracing the curve of the thinar eminence, thumb, dewclaw, fine big paws, murmured some part of her consciousness. Bearing her blunt human teeth, Maggie gently but firmly bit down. With a shuddering gasp, Ernie clasped her to him. His body heat burned down the length of her. No question of the intensity of his arousal. Fine. Big. Enough, chided Maggie. Ernie's voice rumbled in his chest. I knew this would happen, Maggie. There was a night a long time ago when I was only nine. I was up out of my bed because I heard my dad yelling. Yelling like he did when he was afraid for you. And the only thing he knew how to do was act mad. Mama told me that about him. One time when he yelled and hit me for falling out of the old alder tree by the river. Anyway, I was standing at my window, my face pressed to the glass. And I was listening to my old man yelling. And I saw my mama leave the house and just walk into the mist by the river. My dad hung in the doorway instead of going after her. And he called like his voice would break, yelling for her to stay. But she never. One day, five years later, I saw my old man on the dike, not walking like he was beat, but stepping out like he was young again. I could just make out this big dog kind of loping along at his side. And he bent down to touch it, real gentle. And I heard him laugh. Ernie tilted his head down, his expression gentle, knowing. Then I heard the big dog howl, like to raise the hairs of my head. And I knew it was a huge coyote, Maggie. Then it was gone, back into the river mist, and my old man standing there looking after it for the longest time. Damnedest thing I ever saw. But you know, we never lost a chicken or a lamb to coyotes. Neighbors used to marvel some at that, he laughed. Tonight, I saw the lights still on. I don't know how, but I knew to come to you. Maggie slanted a glance at Lisa's remains. Limbs and bloody daubs of flesh were scattered over the surgery. Yes, Ernie, I need you. Ernie stared at her. My dad told me before he died about what really happened to my mother. Ernie stared at her. My dad told me before he died about what really happened to my mother, about what she became. That was her in the mist with my father that day. 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, you're just like her, aren't you? And I'm going to be one too. Maggie straightened. Yes, Cerny, it appears that I am. And you, you have your mother's genes. We are not true coyotes, but possess many of that predator's qualities. Maggie rubbed her cheek against the rough denim of Ernie's vest, needing that physical discomfort to distract her from her body's preoccupation with Ernie's maleness. I find I can shapeshift at will. The first time it happened, just last week at Crater Lake, I had no memory of it until now. Now I understand how to keep in touch with my human self when in predator form, and when in human form, the predator. Maggie's mouth twitched in a wry smile. Well, she is never far. Ernie bared his teeth in fierce joy. Then we can chase the night wind together. It is in your blood, and I have chosen you, Maggie stated simply. Ernie swung her off her feet with a howl of triumph. Maggie tipped her head back over his arm. From her throat came an ululation that twined and climbed with his. Moon song with mate. Yes, agreed Maggie, examining the colors and feelings of that image. Ernie, Maggie finally said. Her teeth tugged at his earlobe to get his attention. He shuddered as her breath stirred and whispered past his ear. Ernie, we have things to do. Ernie lowered her to the ground, releasing her reluctantly. Then, with a twinkle in his eye... He adopted a thoughtful stance, stroking his chin. He eyed Lisa's remains. The freezer? Maggie smiled fondly. No, Maggie said. The gully, I think. Ernie's expression applauded her choice. Of course, the train and the coyotes, said Maggie. Together they gathered the bits of Lisa's corpse onto a blanket and maneuvered it out of the surgery to the back door. One of Lisa's arms caught in the door jamb and with the dry snap of a twig underfoot, broke at elbow. Maggie retrieved it and laid it neatly on top of the gaping rib cage. Just wrap her in the blanket. I think it would be best, Ernie. Make sure you bring the blanket back with you. You can ride wood smoke to the gully. Sure, no problem. She's really light like this, ain't she? He laughed and hefted the blanket sack experimentally. Hmm. Maggie was pleasantly absorbed in her thoughts as she returned to the surgery. She now remembered everything her mother had murmured to her that night, 20 years ago. Mother had planted it in her mind, awaiting her awakening. 
amazing, a retrovirus passed on by the female parent. Huh. She checked on Butterfly, who nosed her hand. Murmuring soothingly, Maggie tucked her into a roomy kennel. The babies were fine, too. The one pup's body she tenderly wrapped in a towel and placed in a plastic body bag, specially coated for cremation. She regretted the puppy's death, had been drawn into a pleasurable trance as she tasted this small life. She would have more control now. Maggie sighed happily as she glanced around the surgery. The hospital could be mine. I can arrange to obtain the practice from Mac. One way or the other, she leaned against the big double doors at the back of the clinic, letting the night wind cool her brow. Or we could travel. Maybe I'll find Mother. Perhaps even now Mother is on her way to me. Nothing comes between Louise and her only cub, that woman at the party had said. Huh. Maggie snorted a small laugh at the new nuance of meaning. Mother hadn't left her. She was only waiting for Maggie's own awakening. She need never age now. A thrill of excitement raised goosebumps on her arm. Or perhaps it was the cold. As she turned to go back inside, she heard the train whistle blow at Vetter Crossing. The coyote packs sang joyously after. Thank you for letting us hear that, Sandra. And The Coyotes Sang was first published in the Spine Tingler's Anthology 2011. Just so you know. Sandra says she's always lived at the edges of ocean and forest, so it was natural for one of her major characters in Ellen Ray the Val to be a sentient forest. That's her first novel. Sandra loves kayaking the scenic island coastline. She loves swimming and walking. She says that she has a ready sense of humor and an optimistic outlook. Very good, dare I say. Uh, necessary attributes for a writer. She's currently working on a sequel to Ellen Ray the Val, and her blog is www.sandrahunter.blogspot.com. And that will be on our homepage. Thanks again, Sandra. And the coyote sang was read for us tonight by Antoinette Bergen. Over the last few weeks, uh, Antoinette has done sweatshop service here in the Nook. She read three of the eight tales in the Octopoid show number 87. Now, here she is again. In addition to reading, Antoinette also writes and is the author of Bedtime Stories for Children You Hate. And I am still waiting for my packet of lime jello, Antoinette. Well, I'm probably not worthy. She can be found on Twitter as at Nettie underscore Bergen, and she probably won't harm you if you follow her. Again, that will be on our homepage also. Our second tale for the evening is by Ms. Cat Rambo. Cat lives in the Pacific Northwest also, and was co-editor of Fantasy Magazine from 2007 to 2011, which effort garnered her a nomination for the 2012 World Fantasy Special Award Non-Professional. 
She collaborated with Jeff Vandermeer on The Surgeon's Tale and Other Stories, published in 2007. Her short stories have appeared in places such as Asimov Science Fiction, Weird Tales, Clark's World, and Strange Horizons. She has worked as a programmer writer for Microsoft and a tarot card reader, and claims that both professions involve both technical knowledge and a willingness to go with the flow. John Barth described Katz's writings as works of urban mythopoeia. Her stories, and I'm quoting her here, take place in a universe where chickens aid the lovelorn, death is just another face on the train, and Bigfoot gives interviews to the media on a daily basis. Her collection, Eyes Like Sky and Coal and Moonlight, was an Endeavor Award finalist in 2010 and followed her collaboration with Jeff Vandermeer on The Surgeon's Tales and Other Stories. Here, without further delay, is Cat Rambo's Grandmother's Road Trip. The sound of the car wheels whispering along the road meshes with grandmother's snores and the faint noise of my mother's humming as she drives. She prefers not to have the radio on during long trips. Inside the car, it's cold as a mall in midsummer, cold as a clinic, a hospital, a morgue. I can't quite see my breath, but I'm wearing a sweater while outside it's 97 degrees, according to the dashboard gauge. The air conditioner roars its displeasure as we roll down the highway. We are traveling with my reluctant grandmother from Mullenville, Kiowa County, Kansas, where she has spent all her life, to a West Coast nursing home near the neighborhood where my mother and I both live. Behind us are her house, now up for sale, her Chrysler, also listed in the local paper, and her possessions, which my mother and I will return to sort through in a week. The landscape spreads out with the pancake flatness of Kansas around us. Cottonwoods trace the edges of a meandering creek and its unseen waters. Irrigation sprinklers spread out green circles only visible from above, where a ribboned contrail shows a plain's progress. Shimmers of summer heat prelude our arrival, as though we chase an oasis that never manifests. My mother glances over at me. Can't sleep? I thought you might want company. I appreciate it. Though I can't see that the silence hasn't been welcome. She rolls her eyes expressively toward the back seat. I heard that, my grandmother says. It is unclear whether she is talking in her sleep or responding, so we wait. More faint snores come from the back seat, so we go back to talking quietly. It is August, the worst possible month to be driving through Kansas. It is a cicada year as well, and every night at the motels we can hear their music swelling. Last night we stayed in Garden City, Kansas, home of feedlot after feedlot. The room was full of flies. A cheap red fly swatter on top of the television said that this was not unexpected. We all shared the same hotel room. It's cheaper to do it that way, and my grandmother insisted on paying all the motel bills as part of her martyrdom. She sleeps alone in one bed while my mother and I share the other. It's strange being with them on this trip. We all look alike. I can see myself twenty and forty years down the line, unless I take some drastic measure. We even smell the same, although my grandmother's scent is masked by perfume and cigarette smoke. 
Waking, my grandmother leans forward, patting my shoulder. Her eyes are uncertain behind her thick glasses. Shayla, you know what's always bothered me? She asks. No, Grandma, what? When you were eight, we went to the Kmart, and there was a toy there, a stuffed black kitty doll. You wanted it so badly. But I didn't want to buy it for you because it was a little shop-worn. You cried and cried. I don't remember that, I said. It's the truth. I remember trips to the Kmart as a child. I bought my first album there, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brasses Talk to the Animals. I remember the bank of coin-operated vending machines dispensing gumballs, jawbreakers, and wonderful trinkets. I always ask my parents, or on occasion, my grandmother, for nickels and dimes, knowing that they'd balk at a quarter. But this cat, somewhere in the shelves of toys Kmart held, a magic section that expanded like unfolding poinsettia blossoms during the holidays, was not something I remembered at all. You cried and cried. Beside me, through the glass, row after row of wheat undulated, golden as Barbie doll hair. I really don't remember it, Grandma. Was that at Christmas, my mother says. Yes. I remember that. You cried all evening. I shrugged. I still don't remember it. But looking back at my grandmother, I see it for a moment in the rear window. A small stuffed black cat, made with real fur, the eyes luminous green marbles. The retreating roadway framed in the glass behind it shimmers. I blink, and the toy is gone. My grandmother lapses into silence, and my mother begins to hum again. At the sound, grandmother speaks. What do you girls plan on doing for dinner? She asks. I don't know, mother. Is there something you would like? Oh, I don't know. She pauses. Maybe someplace we could all sit down and get a nice salad. How about the outback? I suggest. There is silence from both of them. I sigh in admiration at the way I've been drawn into this game. There's a Roy Rogers just ahead, my mother continues. Oh, there, my grandmother says. They have salads. Not nice ones and bowls. I watch the highway signs as we zip along. There's a Chinese restaurant coming up, I cannot resist saying. That would be nice, my grandmother says. And I know, somehow, that this has been her plan all along. She looks out the window. Do you girls know, this is my first road trip? It's like a movie, just the three of us. I can tell she's seriously jonesing for a cigarette. We get in another hour of driving after dinner, but don't want to push on too long. Pulling in at a nondescript motel, thirty-nine ninety-five for a night with privileges to a faded blue swimming pool, we check in and conduct our evening rituals. My grandmother watches Survivor in her bathrobe and goes outside on the balcony to smoke during the commercials. My mother pages through a murder mystery, fingers flicking through it in a steady rhythm. She has a tote bag filled with paperbacks. She'll work her way through them methodically, like a sugar fiend devouring candy bars. The two of them ignore each other for the most part. They've never gotten along, although my mother does not hold the same childhood grudges that my aunt does. My aunt has refused to have any part of this trip besides funding it. I love my mother, but I feel a great deal of fondness toward my grandmother as well. She is stubborn and manipulative, but she's earned that right by living to a ripe 95. 
Even so, I had to agree, despite her protests, that a nursing home would be better for her than the solitary and sometimes fragile existence she's been leading until then. She drives to Walmart out on the highway, my mother had said on the phone, recapping one argument. I can't get her to see that it's dangerous. I can't imagine what the other drivers think. They're probably used to the occasional senior citizen, I said. Can someone be paid to take her to the store twice a week or something like that? It's not just that, my mother said. I'm worried she'll slip in the bath, or on her front steps, or the basement steps. She's getting very frail, but she likes it there. I know. What does Aunt Rosie want to do? Oh, she'd put her in a home tomorrow if she thought she could get away with it. Probably has one all picked out. I would have laughed, but it was true. I'll come out and help you talk to her about it, I said. Thank you, that makes it bearable, my mother said. I don't think you want to get too much in the way of all the discussions, but I know I could use you for moral support. Now, together, half a state away from her home, we say our goodnights and go to sleep. Both my mother and my grandmother snore. Outside, I hear morning doves lamenting, the sigh of wind through the telephone wires, and the whisper of tires rolled down the darkened highway, moving through the pools of light that defined the night's blackness. I've always been a little freaked out by bathrooms at night. For one, I'm nearsighted, but don't usually take my glasses with me when stumbling there out of bed. For another, a thought of someone or something reaching up from the toilet to grab my crotch haunts me, even though I know it's silly. But as soon as I sit down, I think about avoiding thinking it, and then I'm done and standing up while reaching for the toilet paper, not looking at the bowl. Which doesn't explain why, blearily sitting on the pot, I see the cat again in front of me. It is, unlike the rest of the world, perfectly clear in detail. It is covered with rabbit fur, dyed black and eight inches long. Its legs are well delineated from its body, giving it a crouching appearance. The eyes gaze blankly at me. Neither of us move. Yes, I would have wanted it as a child. The imitation of life, the softness of the fur would have enchanted me. My allergies prevented us ever having pets, so I compensated with stuffed animals. I do not want it now, here in the bathroom, inexplicable and surreal. I almost speak, but what would I ask this toy that sits here chilling me colder than any air conditioning? Surely, when I blink, it'll vanish, but it remains, even when I stand and wipe and flush. My feet are cold, but a bead of sweat crawls its solitary way down my back. I step around it to the door. And this time when I look behind me, it is indeed gone. But the hair on the nape of my neck keeps standing up, bristling hard and insistent. I see it every night after that. Sometimes during the day. Once sitting next to my grandmother in the back seat. She and my mother don't see it. But my grandmother keeps telling the same inconclusive story of her failure to buy it over and over. Most of the time I could laugh her off, but this time I was near the boiling point, subjected to the toy's blank but menacing stare, and I could tell my mother knew it. Don't let her get to you, she says as my grandmother moved off to the restaurant bathroom. I sip from my coffee. I think I'm stressed, I say. About what? I shrug, watching wisps of steam curl up from the surface of the drink. 
I let her questions slide off me in that way that only a family member can, and as my grandmother returns to the table, she lets it go. My mother and I try to infect each other with song memes. I start with Afternoon Delight. She counters with Benny and the Jets. I can feel my grandmother listening in the back, wanting to join in, but unable to interject herself in the quick flow of banter. It goes on and on. If I had a hammer, the Sesame Street song, Silver Bells, the Wisconsin cheese jingle, YMCA, It's a Small World After All, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, Copacabana, Yellow Submarine, Kokomo, I Will Survive, Piano Man. Finally, I pull out the biggest gun I know and begin singing Emily Dickinson poems to the tune of the Yellow Rose of Texas. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Arr, my mother says. You can stop right there. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. We used to sing that in choir, grandmother said, but with different words. And with that, the game is stopped dead. I can tell my mother's fighting back a smart-ass reply that will spark a fight to last us the next hundred miles. I sink further down into my seat, rest my cheek against the cold glass. In my head, the words flicker past. Since then, tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day, I first surmise the horses' heads were towards eternity. Without looking back, I know the stuffed cat is sitting on the seat behind me. The nursing home brochures lie ignored on the back seat as my grandmother stares out the window, watching the sweep of wire from one telephone to the next and counting the road markers aloud. The home is on the outskirts of Seattle, in a small town that acts as a bedroom community for the city. Of all the choices, it offers the most freedom to its occupants. My grandmother can take advantage of daily bus trips to the mall and grocery store, and weekly ones to the library and church. She'll have a kitchenette and her own balcony. Still, she's outraged, and all through the trip she needles both my mother and I looking for weak spots. When she tries it on me, I become amiably stupid, letting all the double meanings slide right past. With my mother, she has better luck. By the time we're in Idaho, my mother, tired and cranky, is ready to explode when my grandmother refuses the third restaurant with her usual timid demurals. With a wild swing of the wheel, my mother pulls over onto the side of the road— the landscape here is spotted with red grass. Hills of shale rise up on either side, and a black-and-white magpie sits on a wire fence, flicking its tail back and forth as it watches us. We're doing this for you, she shouts at my grandmother. You might cut us a little slack. We're not serial killers carting you off to be cut up. We're your family, trying to do the best we can. My grandmother blinks at her in silence. Mother leans her head on the wheel and takes a deep breath. I rub her shoulders. Long John Silvers would be fine, then, my grandmother says. Okay. I see the cat as soon as we walk in. A child over by the condiments counter is carrying it around by one front leg. I ignore it. Both my mother and my grandmother pat my back as we stand in line. I shift my weight forward and focus on the menu. The cat lies in the aisle, discarded, while its owner stuffs his pockets with packets of tartar sauce. I give them a wide berth. Before any of us have even unwrapped our food, my grandmother launches into a fresh barrage. I have a lot of things I need to do in my house, she tells my mother. We're selling your house. 
Before we can sell it, there are things I need to do. Like what? Paint that front railing. I'll find someone to do it. What else? Shayla, write all this down. She flaps a hand at me in command, and I make a face at her. Grandmother sinks back into her seat, flummoxed by the mocking cooperation. She eats her fish burger in silence under the fluorescent glare. The drone of the lights is echoed behind her eyes, painful and dry. I'm ready for this trip to be over. Every night, in every motel we stop in, it comes. I will not touch it, but its presence buzzes like angry electricity in my head. It looks up at me, dirty and a little shopworn, as my grandmother described it. Every morning, she tells us the reasons why she cannot go to the nursing home. Last night, I caught my mother crying in the bathroom. She waved me away with a broad, frantic swoop of her hand. My grandmother sits playing solitaire on the table by the window. I stand behind her, watching her play. She builds up stacks of cards to win, meticulous and precise. Not too shabby for an old woman, she says, squinting at me. I'm sorry, Grandma. If you can think of any alternative, I'm willing to listen to it. But I can't think of anything, and neither can Mom. You can't live in your house by yourself anymore. You almost burned it down and then fell on the steps, all in the space of a day. You would have been a little shaky, too, with all those firemen tramping through your yard. I know. I wait, looking at her, but she doesn't speak to me again. We come in up I-5, heading into Seattle and the hospital district. It's late in the evening, but there is still plenty of light in the sky, this northwest endless summer day. The space needle is poised against the sky to our left. We could go eat dinner first, my grandmother says. Let's get you checked in, then we can worry about that. You could pick the place, my grandmother says, her voice pleading. A hard lump rises to the back of my throat, but my mother shakes her head, looking tired and old. No. My mother speaks gently, her hands firm on the steering wheel. I see the cat on one side, then another. When I look in the back seat, my grandmother sits with it behind her. She catches my eye. Do you forgive me for the kitty? She says. I reach over the seat to take her hands. They are cold and brittle, so I rub them in mine. Of course I do, I say. Looking at her, I ask, Do you forgive us? My mother stops humming as my grandmother releases my hands and leans back in the seat, looking out the window. The unanswered silence in the car is endless. It continues along Highway 520, then our turn, and another turn. Here we are, my mother says. When we pull in and my mother gets out of the car to fetch the suitcase from the trunk, my grandmother leans forward. I see the cat on every side, like shimmers of heat. Through the haze, she grips my face, a hand framing it on either side, a touch as light as a phantasm. I forgive you, she says, her voice shaking. We lean our heads together, matching tears. I do not know what I expected. It was not what happened. I did not expect to see the cat materialize under her feet, to see her trip, fall forward to lie crumpled like a sodden napkin. The cat vanishes as I scramble from the curb towards her, but she is on the ground. She grabs my wrist, and then my mother's as well as she leans down. I forgive you, she says loudly. Light goes out of her with the suddenness of a stone sinking into water, and she is gone 
along with a cat. And now I remember wanting it. Wanting it more than anything else in the world. Thanks for that, Cat. If this story rings familiar tones in your head, you may have read it. It was one of the 23 reasons that you bought your copy of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, which, as mentioned, is still available. And if it doesn't ring that bell, go, amend your ways. Buy the book. Ruth Stearns narrated Grandmother's Road Trip tonight. Appropriately per tonight's story, Ruth got her start as a narrator by reading to her husband on long car trips through the empty grasslands of central Florida. She says that while she also writes speculative fiction of her own, she is best known for combating curricular entropy as a college administrator. You can contact her via her blog that may be found on our homepage, letmewritethat.wordpress.com. And that will be that, children of the night. See? An excellent evening here in the Nook. I hope you'll think about the horror con I mentioned earlier, and having thought, I trust you'll share your conclusions with us on our Facebook page. Yes? Yes, of course you will. And with the resonances of our tales still ringing, with the urge to go and buy the book shoving you, with a need to contribute to the running of this and all the shows of the District of Wonders, and with your notions about the inherent possibilities of a virtual con foaming to a froth in your autumnal brain— Please gather yourselves and be up and doing. Grab your wraps and be off with you, bright and chipper. And yes, we have enjoyed having you this evening. The street, I am sure, will still be awash with the agony of season's end and the tears of inevitability. But you'll do fine. Cover your faces like Eve's and Adam's expelled and blend in. Then slip down the side street toward home. Oh, yes, yes. In truth, there may be a coyote or two down there. We've mentioned it before. There are coyote working the streets and alleys of Chicago, ridding those narrow ways of other things, other creatures. Well, what of that? Coyotes, they're... They're shy beasts, and you, you are not shy. No, no. You are the children of the night, and you will work your way to home and rest and to the evening's pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, 
Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank you for listening.